Welcome to Follow to Lead, where we discover how to listen for and follow God's call so that we might lead others to God. Our shared stories of inspiration from religious leaders and those active in the educational ministry of the church can help you know better how God is calling you and the role passionate Catholic education plays in spreading His message of faith, hope, and love. Now please welcome the hosts of Follow to Lead, Father Randy Sly and Kyle Pietrantonio. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ the teacher, teach us to listen. Teach us to do the deep listening to the sounds of our soul, waiting to hear your voice calling to cast us out deeper, to become fishers of men and women, shepherds of souls, to follow your will in order to lead others to the truth, beauty, and goodness only you can offer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to Follow to Lead, a journey twice a month into the world of Catholic education, exploring what it means to follow God in order to lead others to him. I'm Father Randy Sly, your co-host, and unfortunately, Kyle Pietrantonio is not available to be with us for this episode, so I guess I will be flying solo today. And uh, today we will be talking with Dr. Jay Richards, the William E. Simon Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. He is also a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute, Executive Director of The Stream, an online Christian news service, and a research assistant professor at the Bush School of Business at the Catholic University of America. And at the Heritage Foundation, Dr. Richards will focus primarily on the areas of protecting life, family, marriage, religious liberty, and renewing civil society. He has a PhD with honors in philosophy and theology from Princeton Theological Seminary. He is, also has a Master of Divinity, a Master of Theology, and a Bachelor of Arts with majors in political science and religion. Jay is the author and editor of more than a dozen books, including writing uh, the New York Times bestsellers Infiltrated in 2013 and co-writing Indivisible in 2012. He's also the author of Money, Greed, and God, winner of the 2010 Templeton Enterprise Award, and the co-author of Privileged Planet with astronomer Guillermo Gonzalez. And he has most recently written a book with Jonathan Witt by the name of The Hobbit Party. Now, if I keep listing Jay's accomplishments, we're not going to have any time to talk. I'm just going to have to keep rambling, and I don't want to do that. So, Jay, welcome to the program. We're so glad you're here. Great to be with you. Well, you know, it's it's good to be with you again. Uh, you and I go back several years yeah. ago when you and your family attended a parish in Northern Virginia where I was serving. Yes. And uh, we do share a similar journey, both being mm -hmm. converts to the faith. Uh, I wonder if we could start right there and, and have you tell yeah. us a little bit about uh, uh, your journey into the church and how Absolutely. that began. Yeah, I mean, it's we have been uh, entered the church about 12 and a half years ago, and I was raised uh, sort of mainline Presbyterian, really kind of became serious, serious evangelical uh, late in college. And my wife and I met, actually, we were at Asbury Seminary. I, we were She was in a counseling program. I was doing an MDiv. And I always sort of imagined I would uh, do some kind of Christian academic work, but was not really sort of clear on that. And we were uh, in evangelical churches for years. Um, and then I guess around 2008 or 2009, I was working at the Acton Institute and I had, you know, I, I thought, okay, I'm fairly well educated on theological 
topics, but I started encountering really smart Catholics, honestly, that that uh, described Catholic doctrine differently than I understood it. And at some point I realized I know what the Reformed description of Catholic doctrine is, but I didn't necessarily know what the Catholic views on things were from uh, actual representatives of that view. And so honestly, I thought I really need to study this just to be intellectually honest. And so um, as a kind of philosopher would do, I made a list of what are called doctrinal and Impediments. And in fact, my, my wife still has this, doctrinal impediments to being Catholic. And I put canonization and authority at the top, the doctrine of the real presence, doctrine of justification, several things like that. And then the Marian dogmas down at the bottom, because, you know, when you're an evangelical, the Marian dogmas are just so exotic. You don't know what that's, to do with them. That's the default last impediment for most. That's the last impediment. Yeah. I thought, okay, I'll never get to that. But honestly, um, I very quickly became convinced that the doctrine of sola scriptura had a self-reference problem because um, it mm-hmm. presupposes, you know, you can sort of simply describe it. If everything needed for salvation is contained in Scripture, what about that requirement? That's not contained anywhere in Scripture. And in fact, if you think about how Scripture was compiled, uh, it wasn't canonized until, you know, around 395 AD. And so the Catholic understanding that Scripture emerged within the church and is a, is a part of our sacred tradition um, actually just made more sense intellectually once I looked at it. And then when I got to the doctrine of the real presence and really started doing exegesis of John 6, reading the Church Fathers, I became utterly convinced that uh, real presence was what just basically basic Christian belief for 1,500 right. years, um, really kind of an obvious uh, non-negotiable thing. And I thought it actually made way more sense of the text. And so for me, that was the big issue in which in some ways I went from thinking, oh, gosh, there's some good arguments for uh, the Catholic side to realizing, oh, my word, um, this is a big deal. And I went from believing that the church had always taught the real presence, at least historically, uh, but not knowing if I believed it myself, to one day just believing it. I actually went on to a retreat at a, at a, at a monastery in Illinois at the time, and uh, the abbot agreed to do spiritual direction with me, even though I wasn't a Catholic. And one night he asked me if I believed the real presence, and I thought about it, and I did. So that was honestly kind of supernatural benefit. And then my wife, in many ways, she didn't have the same intellectual impediments that I did. She had been raised Wesleyan evangelical. And in some ways, if anything, it was more family impediments. I joked right. that I said, you were one Scott Hahn book and a conversation with a Catholic other than me away from being Catholic for years. I just didn't yeah. know it. So we entered and our daughters were young enough that they entered with us. Um, and I find a little funny story when we were at Our Lady of Hope together in Virginia, the first time we'd ever been to an ordinary at mass. And our younger daughter had never heard it. And at the time she was like, what's happening? This sounds different. Well, it, it, fast forward, she's been going to an ordinary at mass uh, quite frequently and now actually prefers it. So you oh. never know <laughs> how things change. But she's the only one because she was young enough when we became Catholic that's sort of psychologically a cradle Catholic. She doesn't have clear memories of what it was like uh, beforehand. So it's been mm-hmm. you know, it's an absolutely amazing journey. And I've been teaching for seven years at Catholic University, but still feel like, you know, when you're Catholic, there's still always a lot to learn, no matter how right. much you study these things. And the interesting thing is a lot of who you are as an evangelical Protestant stays with you when you come in because Absolutely. there's so much similarity in, in a lot of the areas as well. 
Yeah, especially if you experience it that way. I had a friend yeah. this weekend at a conference who's evangelical, and he said, oh, I want you to tell me what caused you to leave evangelicalism. And I said, actually, I didn't experience it as leaving evangelicalism. I experienced this as just sort of coming into a fuller expression of the faith that I had. It's not like I abandoned everything that I believed as an evangelical, but and that really is how both my wife and I experienced it. Yeah, I think that's true of a lot of converts. There is that sense of of continuity. I wasn't walking away from something. I was walking towards something. Absolutely. Which is, which is really key. Now, in your journey, I know that it it's more than just where you've ended up in terms of going to mass and all of mm -hmm. that, that you become very involved in the Dominican order as well. That's right. And so this was when we were living in Seattle and we'd been Catholic just a few years, but I felt like I, I really was just convinced I was supposed to do something else um, and didn't know what it was and started asking around and actually met with some Franciscans and talked to some people that were involved in Opus Dei. And Opus Dei is much more active, I would say, in Northern Virginia and D.C. than yeah. it was in Washington. Uh, and there was a little a local Dominican parish that I attended sometimes. And I found out about the lay Dominicans and started to attending meetings and realize, okay, yeah, this is definitely, I, I felt like for me, this, this is the thing that I should do. And so I started the process uh, when we were in Seattle and then completed the process, I guess in 2017, I uh, mm -hmm. permanently professed here in the, the, now the Washington Archdiocese. That's wonderful. Have you found that to really kind of uh, leak over into your work, like at Catholic U and other things, having that Dominican influence in your life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the charism for the Dominicans is broadly speaking preaching, but for Christian academics and writers like myself, that that's it's kind of a natural application because I'm mm -hmm. in many ways I'm articulating the things of the faith. In my case, in the public square, and usually dealing with some some controversy having to do with public policy. But the Dominicans, of course, are just very robust in terms of philosophy and theology, in terms of giving you categories to be able to apply. Uh, and I found the natural law tradition to be invaluable. And, in thinking oh, yeah. through these issues. But honestly, it's funny because my lay Dominican chapters, in some ways, I can say when you're an academic, you can end up in a highly homogenous environment where you're just with other professors and academics. Um, whereas the lay Dominican has always been, it's an opportunity for me to be with a lot of serious Catholics that feel called to uh, to the Dominican charism, but from lots, from all walks of life. It's not just wow. a bunch of professors, it's people doing it in, in all sorts of walks of life. And, mm -hmm. I, and honestly, to me, I felt like initially I thought, well, this is funny because this is an interesting mix of people. And then I realized, actually, this is an incredible uh, opportunity that I might not otherwise have. It's actually really easy to end up with people that are more or less like you. Right, right. Now, you're living in Washington, D.C., but I know that's not where you're from originally. Uh, where, uh, tell us about your upbringing. Yeah, I was actually born and raised in Amarillo, Texas, and went to First Presbyterian Church, which is a uh, part of the mainline Presbyterian Church. And so I would say it was sort of neither liberal nor conservative when I was growing up. It would just be very much a kind of respectable mainline uh, church. But when I was in college, a, a very serious pastor came, a guy named Alan Meenan, and started really moving the church, I think, in a strongly evangelical direction. And the, and the PCUSA, the mainline Presbyterian Church, had been has gone through so many trials, especially having to do with sexuality and marriage. Um, and so First Pres and Amarillo really differentiated itself. And it has since actually split from that mainline denomination actually over the marriage issue. And it's one of it really dozens of, of sort of faithful Presbyterian churches that have had to leave 
the mainline denomination over marriage and sexuality. Um, but that's, you know, that is how I was schooled. And then my best friend was Church of Christ, which is a, a sort of low church evangelical denomination, very, very common in Texas. And so I grew up going to Bible camp with him. And I often actually credit much of my knowledge of scripture to the, uh, to the Bible camps that I attended with him. That sounds good. And uh, with that upbringing, um, what what led you, for example, going on to uh, study at a seminary? Did you have a sense of call to full time ministry, to pastoral ministry as you became a teenager and older? Not, not really as a teenager. It really wasn't until college. Um, and in many ways, in fact, I just really had no idea what I was going to do. In fact, I was in an officer candidate program for the Marine Corps and uh, had been reading C.S. Lewis and read The Abolition of Man and really got much more serious about my, my Christian faith. Because, I, you know, it's one thing to kind of intellectually believe the Apostles' Creed. It's another thing to say, OK, this is you know, true and should govern everything. Mm -hmm. And I didn't quite know what I was supposed to do, but I had a sense I was supposed to do something. And I, I thought, so I was sort of open to the pastoral ministry, but I always sort of had a sense that I would pursue some kind of uh, academic career, the way it was my sense. But honestly, you you sort of stumble around in the dark. If you'd asked me 20 years ago or 30 years ago, if I'd have been doing what I'm doing now, I wouldn't have even known it was a thing to do, probably, right, right. honestly, you know, and so in many yeah. ways, it's just sort of walking through the doors. And at least in my case, God never sort of gives me more details than I absolutely need to know that very moment in order to make a decision, right. but never yeah. actually see the, you know, I always said, look, if I just get a you know, sort of memo from heaven telling me what to do, I'd be happy to do that. But for whatever reason, the Lord's not uh, provided that way. I think he wants me to, to, to follow his guidance, at, you know, in much more short term. You know, it's interesting. We both share the same um, seminary uh, status going to Asbury. Yeah. And uh, like you, I'm sure that uh, the people at Asbury would be shaking in their heads right now, knowing that uh, one of their fine alumni was uh, now a Catholic priest. In fact, there's another alumnus that was a classmate of mine that's also a part of the ordinariate that's as well. Funny. So it's kind of neat to see how God it does is. take you. But it, back then, I would have never known that I was going to make this kind of a journey. No, exactly. You no. don't. It's hard. It's sort of hard to yeah. imagine. But now, mm -hmm. after the fact, though, it sort of seems inevitable. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, you've been at uh, before you just joined uh, Heritage Foundation in yeah. August. Uh, you were at seven years at Catholic U. Was this your first venture into working full time in a post-secondary environment? I know you do a lot mm -hmm. of conferences with yep. uh, institutes and organizations and have spoken at colleges and campuses across the nation. But is this the full time uh, first time fully in a, a post-secondary school? It was. In fact, I have spent most of my career in the think tank world, first at the Discovery Institute and the Acton Institute. Um, and I, I joke that think tanks, um, if you can find a really great think tank, it allows you to pursue intellectual interests and to write and to speak, but not have to grade papers, uh, you yeah. know, which is sort of the worst, <laughs> yeah. worst part of teaching. And so, yeah, so seven years at Catholic U, uh, did a sort of a mix of that and was really blessed to be able to be uh, involved in some exciting projects. And so a lot of great stuff happening at Catholic U, especially I was at the Bush School of Business. And it's a really exciting kind of place to be because of this commitment to the integration of good business and economics theory on the one hand, uh, and Catholic social teaching on the other. There's really not another uh, Catholic business school that's that's pursuing that specific and explicit of a mission. 
I know at that business school, and I can't remember the name of the, the primary author that actually has put together a catechism. Yeah, it's Andrew. Yeah, Andrew Bella, who is the dean yeah, of the Bush School of Business. Yeah. And uh, my colleague, um, Joe Capizzi, who is a professor of theology. That's it's, yeah, it's called it's called the catechism for business. It's great. Yeah, it kind of again, it's that that integration, bringing faith into the marketplace, which is a, a powerful concept. Yeah, absolutely. Now, with your venture into Catholic higher education, how does how did that environment compare to the experiences you had as a Protestant going through your higher education experience? What what differences do you see in the Catholic approach? Well, I mean, certainly it would depend on the individual institution, but uh, certainly, I mean, Catholic Uni- University is an amazing place in part because it's the Pontifical University, uh, mm-hmm. and also because it's right next to the the National Shrine, to the the right. National Basilica, um, and you have the Dominican House of Studies and religious orders around it. So there's really, you know, as you know, anyone that's in D.C. that's sort of a, a little Rome, and so that uh, it's sort of hard to replicate that experience. But I, I, you know, my impression is that many of the things that are working working their way through the culture, uh, even conservative evangelical and fairly faithful Catholic schools are not immune to these things. I mean, Catholic U has been blessed so far, for instance, that it hasn't had a huge blow up on, say, the transgender issue or, you know, the dorm issues or whatever. But um, those those issues are in the culture and you can't avoid it. And, you know, you don't imagine that, you know, if you have your child at some place that's really faithful, somehow they're going to be immune to that. I mean, the reality is we have to inoculate our children against these ideas, no matter where they might end up in college. And there's there's no place that's just literally going to quarantine them from this. And I, I honestly think uh, with the, you know, they're right here and across the street, actually, Capitol Hill, they're t- debating the so-called Equality Act, which, of course, sounds nice. But if the Equality Act becomes law, um, uh, effectively, Christian organizations, including Christian colleges, uh, just simply by following uh, their perennial understanding of humanity, of the human person and of sexuality will be directly violating civil rights laws. So if you think that there are males and females, for instance, that that's a real thing in the world uh, in the Equality Act passes, it will be as if you were denying the full humanity of African-Americans. That's how we will be treated before the law. And so um, that that's what's coming up the pike. And I think we're going to find out which uh, which Christian institutions are genuinely faithful or not here in the next few years. Yeah. Uh, Do you think that uh, a lot of institutions are aware that we are on the precipice of this? Or do you think a lot of people are um, just kind of not quite aware that that it's getting as serious as it is? I think administrators in, in at least in faithful schools, so presidents of and provosts of, of, of faithful Christian institutions realize exactly what's happening. But my impression is that the average person in the average American Christian does not really realize this. They don't really realize how late the date is and how uh, profoundly challenging this is going to be. I mean, j- just the fact uh, just here, just in the last day since we're recording this, um, the American Medical Association has come out and said that on the uh, the public part of birth certificates, people should not, be, you know, should no longer put male or female. So in other words, don't designate the sex publicly on birth certificates. This is the American Medical Association. So that's what's happening in the culture. Um, and it, the, the idea that it's not going to touch our institutions. I think is, is profoundly naive. We need to want first 
figure out and understand what's happening. Uh, because if we don't really face reality as it is, I don't think we're going to be able to come up with the strategy to, to resist it or defeat it. There's a book that's been circulating now for several months called uh, From Christendom to Apostolic Mission, mm. talking about the the fact that we are no longer living in a Christendom society. That's right. Um, but we're moving back to like a first century understanding of how the church uh, has to live and move and have its being. And that sounds to me like uh, it's ex exactly what you're talking about here. Yeah, I really think that we need to I, we need to look at the early church, at least uh, as for guidance for the courage and the boldness. So um, what's amazing uh, when you you read the, the the church fathers, I mean, they didn't have the you know, they didn't have the retrospect that we had to know what happened in the Middle Ages. Right. right. And yet they showed a kind of boldness and a confidence, even though they did not occupy the commanding heights of culture. They did not control the institutions that you would think would dominate history. Uh, and yet they trained utterly transformed history through their faithfulness. The one thing that's different now is that uh, they were dealing with pre-Christian pagan culture. We're dealing with post-Christian pagan culture. And so in some ways we have a greater challenge, but I do think that their model of courage is what we need because the temptation for us is either to give up every battle, single battle that gets lost, we just sort of give up and say, well, I hope the Lord returns soon. Um, and we just can't do that. We have to be faithful and we have to, you know, if we, we believe the truth of the gospel, uh, then, you know, we can't be sort of scoring ourselves that way. We simply need to be faithful in the particular time and place that, that Christ has put us. Now, uh, your latest book, uh, at least the latest one that I, I think there's another one that you've come out with now on the pandemic since then, yeah. but uh, the one, the Hobbit party, the uh, vision of freedom that J.R. Tolkien got and the West forgot. Mm -hmm. it, um, that sounds like it's kind of talking about the same perspective because you have a different way of looking at uh, Tolkien's writings. Is that correct? That's right. And I co-authored this with my friend, Jonathan Witt, who's really right. a literary guy. His PhD is in, is in uh, literary criticism. Um, and he and I were both Tolkien geeks and Tolkien fans as kids. And we were frankly tired of the secular left misusing Tolkien for their own purposes. And so we wanted to give a close reading to his literature and his private letters. So, you know, it's private mm -hmm. letters have been published, um, which really I, it shows that first a first rate thinker, not just a fantasy novelist and an English scholar, but a first rate thinker who had really keen insights about culture and politics and economics. Uh, and we think he was a champion of, of true freedom, the freedom uh, for excellence, to be able, the freedom to exercise and to develop virtue. He was a deep skeptic of the kind of overweening growth of the, the power of the state uh, at a time when that was sort of unfashionable, actually, in the 1950s mm -hmm. in England. Um, and, and that's something that people, I think, don't often understand. And of course, needless to say, a, a, a very serious Catholic and what we would now call a social conservative. But he was actually much more insightful on many of the issues that we think of having to do with politics and culture, I think, than people often give him credit for. And if you just read his letters and read his literature in light of his letters, I think that comes through clearly. That's interesting. So really, Middle Earth has a lot to teach us about uh, faith and culture and modern society where we are. 
Absolutely. And of course, we're not saying that The Hobbit and The, the Lord of the Rings were allegories because they're not. They're not these simple one to one allegories. Nevertheless, there are themes, there are worldview assumption. There is a particular view of reality that is embedded in those. And then you don't have to go sort of, you know, doing reading the tea leaves when you're reading these novels. You can actually go to his private letters where very often he will tell people exactly what he was trying to do. And so it's not it's sort of like, you know, yeah, we can read the Constitution and you can also read the Federalist Papers yeah. to find out, OK, what were these guys thinking? You can read Tolkien's literature and his private correspondence telling people what he was thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, that's interesting because it it reminds me of a saying that I heard at Asbury, and you may remember it, uh, a text without a context is a pretext. Yes, absolutely. I had a professor that said, yeah, context is everything. If yeah, if you don't, if you don't really understand the context of the text originally, you can just sort of manipulate it and make it say almost anything. And I think that's what we see going on now in, in so many ways, even in terms of interpreting the Constitution. Absolutely. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, the reality is um, the importance of these texts. I mean, this is I mean, this is the kind of movement toward critical theory, which basically denies that texts have any fixed meaning. Notice the critical theorists, though, they never apply that principle to their own writing. They always assume yeah. that they're communicating something, but yeah, they're not exactly. going to allow the Apostle Paul uh, to do that. You know, uh, right. the, the, and so they never want the, their own text to be manipulated in the way that they they recommend for other authors. Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, experience that we have when we have see those things going on in uh, dialogue as it's going back oh, yeah. and forth. Yeah. Um, now, the majority of our viewers and listeners are Catholic school leaders and teachers. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking of your new position at the Heritage yeah. Foundation, and I know that you're still kind of getting settled in your seat. Yeah. And But um, as you're beginning your tenure, I'm curious, is there anything that you anticipate working on that would be a special interest to educators? Absolutely. And in fact, I'm, I'm part of a, a division here at Heritage that does life and religious liberty and marriage, also does educational freedom. And uh, the irony of the COVID lockdowns, as bad as they have been, especially for educational outcomes for kids in public schools, is that millions of parents who were sort of asleep at the wheel and did not actually know what was happening in schools started seeing what was happening in the schools because their kids were doing it at home on Zoom. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is a huge opportunity for homeschooling. And it's a huge opportunity for faithful Catholic education, uh, because the reality is that the only reason that the educational system, the, the sort of K through 12 educational system is in such bad shape is that well-meaning parents are not generally aware of what's actually happening in the schools that they have delegated their children's education to. And so I think there's a kind of major opportunity for uh, Catholic schools to uh, to be able to provide an alternative. And I know that there are a lot more parents that, you know, they just thought, well, I know there's some crazy stuff happening in Berkeley, California, but this isn't happening in Loudoun County, Virginia. Most of them no longer believe that they're they're not nearly as naive. And so I think for especially for faithful Catholic schools, this is a major opportunity. And at the Heritage Foundation, we're, we're really hoping uh, that this will help move forward initiatives uh, for educational freedom. I mean, it's really an outrage that poor Americans, just because of the neighborhood in which they live, basically are forced to send their children to the school that happens to be in their neighborhood, whereas wealthy people, of course, they have choices. They can homeschool their kids or send them to a private school. We think poor Americans should have the same alternatives. You think this is really going to turn the tide on uh, school choice? 
I hope it is. I mean, in some ways, I think that the left is so far over its skis at this point that I, I think I'm hoping that there's going to be a reaction in the other direction. I mean, now we have uh, the fact that we have burly men uh, competing against women in Olympic powerlifting competitions and people aren't allowed to say that's outrageous. The fact that um, we've got we've got explicitly racist ideology being taught in public schools. I think, it, look, this is stuff that the left has been pushing through the institutions for decades. It's just that it's now suddenly come into public view. I mean, I was dealing with this stuff in graduate school in the 1990s. Well, now we're teaching it to, 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 to kindergartners. And so I really am hoping that this will push the educational uh, freedom initiatives farther than it's been able to go, because there's been there's been sort of isolated pockets of success. But the teachers unions have been so powerful in pushing back. And frankly, there haven't been enough parents that have been really engaged on this issue. And I, I think, honestly, that the last year has caused that to change. Now, in, in looking at Catholic schools today, do you have any thoughts? I know at Catholic U, you've probably had some exposure to mm -hmm. uh, secondary education and, yes. and parochial education, those types of things. What do you see as the greatest need that our Catholic school teachers have today? I mean, I think, honestly, it's a it's a recovery of the tradition. My younger daughter's last two years, uh, she was a student at a wonderful little uh, Catholic liberal arts school in Washington, D.C. called St. Jerome Institute. That is, in many ways, it's the education I would have liked to have had, in which they're reading the great books, they're engaging texts, it's an integrated curriculum. It's frankly, it's what the really good Catholic schools were doing in the 50s and 60s with far fewer resources. And unfortunately, many Catholic schools, for various reasons, started to ape what the public schools were doing over the last mm -hmm. few decades. Well, it turns out people don't necessarily want to spend thousands of dollars uh, to get more or less what they were going to get from the local public schools anyway. And so I honestly think, um, I mean, marketers will tell you, market your difference. Catholic schools need to market their differences. And the differences, the contrasts are becoming so dramatic. And I think that the demand for that contrast is going to be much more pronounced now that just frankly, the culture, and that includes the public schools, is getting so contrary to reality and so contrary to nature. Well, it seems like in Catholic education, one of the beautiful things we can do is that all of the different um, areas of study can be informed by our faith, whether it's English, mathematics, sciences, yes. all of those um, can be informed by the faith that we hold. How, do you see that as I mean, that's not new. That's just yeah. our, our distinctive. It is our distinctive, but the, I mean, theology is the queen of the sciences. And, um, you know, that changed in the 19th century. Astronomer and um, natural philosopher William Ewell is the one that said uh, astronomy is the queen of the sciences, not theology. And so, you know, it sort of changed. And theology yeah. went from being the queen of the sciences to being, well, kind of a weird thing that maybe we tolerate to being completely out of the curriculum. And so mm -hmm. it's only really in a strong Catholic context that theology can have its pride of place and can be seen, doesn't mean every discipline is theology. Chemistry mm -hmm. isn't theology. Uh, they still have their kind of natural topic and, and autonomy. But theology has something to say to all those things. And so that it's really, uh, it, it's only in a kind of robustly Catholic context that you can have a fully integrated curriculum. And when that happens, I'm telling you, it just turns on the minds of students to be able to see the connections between these things. That's, it's so true. And, and at the same time, we're at a kind of interesting, uh, place within the church. Um, one of, an old adage is uh, demographics are destiny. Mm -hmm. I don't, and uh, 
you know, right now, the metrics of the American Catholic Church are just yeah. not very hopeful. And not. there was a recent report from the NCEA about the growth of grouping and growth of Catholic schools. That's uh, very sobering. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, what counsel advice or encouragement do you have, like for especially for Catholic school leaders? They're in the trenches right now and they see the current situation. They need to, like you said, uh, send out the right messages in terms of the difference, differences that we might have, differentiations, mm-hmm. those types of things. But being in the trenches, what kind of uh counsel or advice would you have for the leaders today? Well, I, I think honestly, they, they need a circle of prayer because as you said, they are in the trenches and um, every social pathology and so cultural issue that you read on your Twitter feed or on Facebook or in the news is going to find its way into Catholic schools. And I think there'll be a concerted effort uh, on the part of the forces of darkness, frankly, the cultural forces of darkness to attack Catholic schools. Uh, but I think the best antidote to that is to be quite clear about what your commitments are. I think that it's going to be the faithful Catholic schools uh, that weather that storm. I think the ones that are wobbly uh, are either going to collapse because they're simply they have no differentiation or they'll be completely assimilated to the wider culture and then really cease to be Catholic in any meaningful sense. I I think the message is still absolute faithfulness and and fidelity to the faith handed on once uh, once for all. You know, one of the things about uh, Follow to Lead, we're the basically a podcast for the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative, which is basically um, a means and way for Catholic leaders and educators to find each other uh, who are dedicated to faith formation as a key component of of Catholic schools. It seems to me that uh, as that circle of prayer really lifts them up, just joining together in in Mm -hmm. a collaboration like that is going to be even more important as we go through these succeeding months and years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, there's no doubt that in my mind that um, there's organizations very specifically looking for individual entities to pick off, just as you have Baronel Stutzman, the, the, the florist right in Washington state, who's been tormented for years simply because she didn't want to participate in a same sex wedding. It wasn't that she wasn't uh, serving uh, same sex attracted customers. She just simply didn't want to use her her artistic skills in support of something she she didn't agree with. Well, this is the strategy. Notice they're not trying to take on everyone all over the country. They pick on one florist in one town in a very particular place in the country. Uh, and I think that's why schools have to decide. It's, it's sort of basically an alliance, right, in which an alliance uh, that says, look, an attack on one of us will be an attack on all of us. And we, we can't allow individual institutions to be picked off. Mm-hmm. Well, that is so true. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been a delight to just kind of catch up with you and and hear what's going on and hear your heart and to encourage us with uh, with what God is doing uh, through your eyes. And so we want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to be with you. And again, if uh, you as one of our listeners or uh, viewers have not done this already, please subscribe to our podcast and be sure to leave a comment to encourage us toward future programming. And we also want to thank our production interns, John Sampson and Alex Shire, along with our production supervisor, Mr. Jack Alsbach, for producing this podcast. May Almighty God bless you. We'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Follow to Lead, a production of the Duke and Altum Schools Collaborative. 
To learn more about finding your own path in your journey of faith, or for more information on what we discussed in today's episode, you are invited to follow us on social media and visit us on the web at diaschools.org. To provide a one-time donation or monthly pledge, please visit our website. Your gift will aid us in providing up-to-date information, additional resources, and other support on how to take Catholic education to a higher level. We look forward to helping you follow God's call to lead others to God right here on Follow to Lead.